Well, good morning, church. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 17, if you want to take your Bible and turn there with me. Parents, on the first three Sundays of the month, we have children's church, so we would typically dismiss the kindergarten through third graders uh, to go off to children's church at this time. On the fourth and any fifth Sunday we have, we don't do that. We stay all together. Most of you know that by now. Uh, but if you're a kid who's staying in here and you normally wouldn't, I want to challenge you to do a couple of things. We do have some, uh, they may all be gone now. There could be some still left outside the doors to my right, your left. There's some activity bags that our kids' ministry team puts together. And kids, I encourage you to do two things while I'm talking. Uh, write down something that I say that you don't understand and something that you learned. Something you don't understand and something new that you learned. Write that down and then as you leave, as you're going home today with your mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or aunt or uncle, whoever you're with, uh, talk to them about those things. Tell them what you didn't understand. Maybe they didn't understand it either. Uh, and tell them what you learned. And maybe they didn't understand what you learned and you can teach them. Uh, so... Took a couple of things for you uh, kids who are with us today. We're excited that you're here. You are just as much a part of the church as anyone. Uh, and so I'm thankful that you're here. Uh, and I'm thankful that we can all learn from God's Word. Amen? All right. We are covering a full chapter this morning. Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 16. I've seen this, uh, this, this passage covered, uh, preached in, in two sermons typically. Because uh, there's two distinct scenes in the text that we're going to read. But I think that taking them all together, we learn uh, actually something uh, that's exciting for me, something a little deeper maybe uh, than just looking at each scene individually. And so we have a lot to cover, so we're going to jump right in. Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, reading all the way through the end of the chapter, this is God's Word. So then the entire Israelite community left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next, according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So, uh, so the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me, Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What should I do with these people? In a little while they'll stone me. The Lord answered Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I am going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massah and Meribah, for the Israelites complained, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? At Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, Select some men for us and go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand. Joshua did as Moses had told him and fought against Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. While Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. But whenever he put his hand down, Amalek prevailed. When Moses' hands grew heavy, it took, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat down on it. Then Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady until the sun went down. 
So Joshua defeated Amalek and his army with the sword. The Lord then said to Moses, Write this down on a scroll as a reminder and recite it to Joshua. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. And Moses built an altar and named it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Indeed, my hand is lifted up toward the Lord's throne. The Lord will be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is God's Word. Would you join me in prayer over its reading this morning? Father, we come to you with your Word on our hearts today. Hearing it read, Father, we, we, we've heard your Word read from the Old Testament and the New Testament and Psalms today. God, we, have, we are hearing your heart for your people. And Lord, we trust that you preserve this account of Israel's struggle in the wilderness. Their thirst at Massa and Meribah, their struggle against the Amalekites, the Rephidim. God, you, you, you preserved all these things for us, for your glory. And Lord, so help us as your people come before your word in submission to it. God, teach us from it today, not truths of man, but eternal truths given to us by your Holy Spirit, without whom we wouldn't be able to understand any of this, God. Give us spiritual ears to hear spiritual truths this morning, we pray. Help us to be people who are doers of your word and not hearers only. Lord, we need your spirit to be able to do that. We need your word be able to do that, Father. And so we pray that, that you teach it to us today in your Son's name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, a lot of things happened in the summer of 1969. Some of you remember that time. Some of you know it only as the summer that Brian Adams got his first real six-string, played it till his fingers bled, and the rest is history. But for a lady named Betty Penrose, a woman who lived in Arizona. The summer of 69 is the summer that everything changed. Betty was a legal secretary in Phoenix who lived a pretty normal life. That is, until her home was struck by lightning during a severe thunderstorm and it burned to the ground. It was, as the insurance companies call it, an act of God. Well, Betty, remember I said, was a legal secretary. Her boss was a man named Russell Tansy, and he heard about the tragedy, and he took it on himself to file a lawsuit on Betty's behalf. And he didn't file it against her insurance company. He didn't file it against the bolt of lightning itself. He didn't file it against the state of Arizona. No, he filed a lawsuit against God. Because God was responsible for, and I quote, the maintenance and operation of the universe, including the weather in and upon the state of Arizona. Thus, God was responsible for the lightning bolt that struck and burned down Miss Penrose's house. The lawsuit asked for $75,000 in general damages and $25,000 in punitive damages. On the date of the trial, the court noted that the defendant, God, did not, in the eyes of the court, appear for the hearing, and Penrose won the case by default and was awarded $100,000 in damages. Yes, God is an outlaw in the state of, well, it's California, which it might not be surprising that God's an outlaw in California, but the lawsuit was filed there because some hippie ranch deeded land over to God. That's not really important. What's important was 
God was sued. This isn't the only time, actually, that God has found his name dragged into the U.S. legal system. In 2008, Nebraska Senator Ernie Chambers filed a lawsuit against God, arguing that God caused, and I quote again, widespread death, destruction, and terrorization on millions upon millions of the earth's inhabitants. Well, the state of Nebraska has a little more sense. That suit was thrown out of court when it was determined that they did not have proper jurisdiction to serve God a subpoena. I think both of these suits were brought to draw attention, but they're far from the first time that God has been put on trial. We see the same thing in our text this morning. And while the charges brought by Betty Penrose and Ernie Chambers, they were frivolous, Israel, in their own mind, had some very serious charges to level against this God who was leading them in the wilderness. As we open chapter 17, Israel is thirsty. They complain to Moses, give us water. Moses, probably frustrated that Israel didn't learn their lesson the first time, tells them that they're complaining to the wrong person. Your complaints are not against us, but against the Lord, Moses had said back in chapter 16. Why are you testing the Lord, he asks. But Israel doesn't back down. The, they, they instead put God on trial. The word for complain used in verse 2 is most commonly used in a legal setting. Their complaint is issued as a formal charge against Moses and therefore against God himself. And the charge isn't withholding water. No, if you read the text, the charge is murder, or at least attempted murder. Verse 3, Why did you ever bring us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? There's so much bitterness there, church. Israel asks this God who rescued them, this God who has sustained them, this God who is on the daily giving them bread from heaven, why are you trying to kill us? It sounds preposterous. We would all say that this is never something that we would do, and we'd all be wise at the same time to pay heed to the words credited to the English reformer John Bradford, who upon seeing criminals led away for execution, exclaimed, There but for the grace of God go I. You see, it's easy for us to come and to study Israel's heritage, Israel's history on a week-to-week -week basis and, and make them out to be a caricature, right? They're frail. They're slow to learn. They struggle chapter after chapter to finally submit to God. We think we would have done better. Israel, we just sang trust and obey. Y'all didn't have that song back then. You didn't have it figured out yet, did you? They should have written that song earlier than they would have known that they're supposed to trust and obey and everything would have gone much smoother. But we need to acknowledge right up front, church, that the seed of all of their sin, the seed of Israel's sin, the distrust, the bitterness, the pain, the anger that Israel feels with God, so much so that they accuse him of murder. All of that mess, church, lives in seed form in all of our hearts. We are capable of the same sin that Israel commits in this passage. They were in a serious crisis. They'd never lived outside the relative safety of Egypt before. And sure, that was a terrible life. But it's the terrible life that they understood. That was an urban life. Now they're wandering in the desert. They're learning to be nomads. 
They've walked more in the past month than they've walked in the last year, maybe in their whole lives. And now they're running low on water. They have elderly among them. They have the very young among them. They have people with medical conditions among them. They're worried. And it's easy for us to sit in a heated auditorium on cushioned pews and chide them for not trusting God. After all, he just solved this very situation in the last chapter, didn't he? It was two weeks ago in our study, but we, we remember that God already provided miraculous water for them from a bad spring, from a soured spring, from a potentially poisonous spring. They threw the tree in. God purified the water. They'd witnessed miracle after miracle. They woke up to manna every day, and still they doubted God. Church, we have to recognize that Israel had seen God do more than you or I ever will in all likelihood in our lifetime. If we're honest, both our problems and our experience of God's power fall short of Israel's. We don't suffer like they did, and we probably won't see God work like they did. But their root sin and our root sin can be so similar. When life gets hard, instead of running to God for shelter, we have a tendency to drag God into the court of our mind and say, God, why did you do this? God, how could you? And I'm not saying it's wrong to have questions, because we'll regularly have questions. We're not going to know why God works in the way that He does. And praying for clarity, praying for discernment, asking God to give you an answer is not wrong, but that's not what Israel did. You see, praying to God for an answer and accusing God of wrong are miles apart. We need to do the former and guard against the latter. What Israel does here, church, is sinful, full Stop. That's further revealed for us over in Psalm 95 where the psalmist writes, For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the sheep under His care. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the way to Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose heart go astray. They do not know my way. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Israel's behavior in this passage angers God. It disgusted God according to that passage. They tested God. They put God on trial. In fact, we have the charges that we have in the text what Israel is accusing God of. First, they accuse God of being an incompetent leader. You see, Moses, who is writing this after the fact, makes clear for us who is leading this little expedition into the wilderness. Doesn't he look back at verse 1? The entire Israelite community, this phrase that he continues using to denote everybody, this is the whole, the whole family, all the Israelites. They left the wilderness of sin, moving from one place to the next, according to the Lord's command. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people drink. And this isn't the main point of the passage, but I, I love some of the little things that God includes in Scripture. Uh, Rephidim means resting place. Okay, God led them to the resting place, but instead of resting, they don't rest. They take it on themselves to complain. 
Their, their movement, the text reads, was according to the Lord's command. God sent them to Rephidim. He sent them to the place with no water. He did the same thing at Marah in chapter 15. He provided there. So does Israel expect them to provide here? No. When they don't find the water that they expect, they immediately grumble against Him. Church, so often, God leads us to a place of rest. And yet we busy ourselves worrying over things that we have no power to control in the first place. I don't know what Israel was expecting. Okay, sometimes we ask questions and we don't really think them through first. So Moses was probably just as thirsty as the rest of the Israelites. We don't, this doesn't say, we, nowhere is it revealed to us in the text that Moses is wearing a camelback uh, or that he's carrying a hydro flask or anything like that. He was probably just as thirsty as they were. And they go to Moses with their complaints. Moses, give us water! What do you expect Moses to do? They, they took it on themselves to go to the guy that's in the same situation as them and complain. You see, chapter 16, we had just learned that God has prioritized rest for His people. Chapter 16 talks about the Sabbath. Now they're at this place of rest and they immediately busy themselves by worrying about a thing they can't control, going to a guy who also can't fix the problem. And complaining to him. You see, sometimes church, because what, really what they weren't, they weren't really expecting Moses to produce water. They didn't think that Moses had some, some surplus, some backstock that he just wasn't sharing. They didn't think that was true. No, they're not complaining about Moses. They're ultimately complaining about God here. When we blame God for our circumstances, when we despise our circumstances, we're in effect saying that God doesn't know what he's doing. God, really, you meant to lead us to a place with water, right? God, remember, remember Elam? God, you led us to a place with 40 springs. Can we, we're going in circles anyway. Can we just go back there? God, you, you need to recalculate your GPS. God, you might be, God, stop and ask for directions because you don't know where we're headed. You didn't realize, God, that there's no water here. God, you're not qualified to lead my life. God, if you were qualified to lead my life, I wouldn't feel the way that I feel. I wouldn't be frustrating or frustrated. I might still be frustrating. I wouldn't be frustrated. I wouldn't be hurting the way that I hurt. I wouldn't have the sadness that I have. I wouldn't feel the anxiety that I feel. I wouldn't feel lonely the way that I feel. God, if you were really capable of handling my life, it would be going different. You see, Israel knew God was sovereign. They knew that God had the power to provide water, yet their fears and frustrations, their hurts, their habits, their hang-ups, they caused them to outwardly doubt that God knew what He was doing. Instead of trusting that the God who provides led them there, Israel charged them with incompetence. God, you got it wrong. God, this isn't how it's supposed to be. And they accused him of withholding the thing they needed to survive. Verse 2. Some of the people complained to Moses, give us water to drink. They, they made their demands known. Instead of praying for God to provide, they demanded that God provide. And our prayers, church, are not a list of demands. Your prayer list is not a ransom note. Okay, the way they demanded water here is so fierce. This wasn't, hey, hey, Moses, 
Can we talk to you for a second? I just, I can't, it's hot. It's a desert, isn't it? Like, are, are you hot, Moses? I'm hot. I mean, we have some people who are cold, because they, remember, these are the forerunners of Baptists, so they, even in the desert, they wouldn't have all been hot. Somebody in the back would have been cold. But Moses, a lot of us are hot, and most of us are thirsty. Uh, Moses, do you think you might, I mean, you're close with God, right? You guys are tight. Have you thought about asking God? That's not the conversation that they had. No, they drew Moses before them and said, Look, Moses, we're hot, we're stinky, we're thirsty. And really, this is your problem, not our problem. So Moses, here's the thing. You need to get us some water, or there's going to be consequences. Moses, it's time that this God of yours, he started providing for us, because if he doesn't, you're going to have a whole lot of angry Israelites on your hands. This isn't worship. This is rage. This is rebellion. It's so fierce that Moses feared for his life. In this moment, these are not a people who are worshiping God. These are people who are worshiping themselves. They're worshiping their comfort. They're worshiping their own survival. In church, we resonate with that, don't we? When we don't get our way, it's hard to pray. When we don't get our way, it's hard to accept. God's perfect will for our lives, when, especially when it doesn't jive with the ideal expectation that we had for life. I don't know what Israel thought freedom was going to be, okay? I can't get into the mind of the average, run-of-the-mill, everyday Israelite slave in Egypt. But I can't imagine those, all those long days of making bricks with straw, bricks with no straw, preparing to build temples for Pharaoh, that they thought, you know, it's going to be better one day when we're thirsty and sweating in the desert. I can't wait for that day. We all have, in, in a lot of ways, we have that day that things are going to be better, right? For some of you, it's when I graduate school. For some of you, when it's when, it's I, get my, when I get my driver's license or when I get married or when we have kids or when the kids leave or, what, or when the grandkids come, whatever that next stage of life, you look at it and go, it's going to be better, And then God gives you exactly what you want. We're at the end of January, right? Kids that are here, how many of you that you, you have something that you wanted for a long time for Christmas? And you got it? And you were stoked about it? And mom and dad got pictures of you? I know, Cam, I know Cam's on board with everything. I love it. Cam, what's something you got for Christmas, Bo? You can play along. Just yell it loud. Nintendo, when's the last time you played it? Ah! Right? The thing that we want, God gives it to us. We're like, yeah, that's awesome. God, I really need something else now. Okay? I don't think this is what Israel had in mind when they wanted their freedom. But this was the thing God provided. And when it wasn't what they expected... They stopped trusting Him to be the God who saves them. They wanted Him to be the God who gives in to their demands. And when He wasn't, they became angry. God, this is the resting place. We'd like some of that rest that You promised now, but we're thirsty. And yes, these are real life or death circumstances, but Jesus modeled for His church the right prayer in life or death circumstances. He said in Luke 22, Father... If you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
That's not anger. That's not a demand for water. Israel was so riled up that they, Moses worried in verse 4 they were going to stone him. They were going to kill him. But they actually accused God of trying to kill them. God, instead of protecting us, God, you're assaulting us. God, look at all the stuff that's going on in our lives. God, we're lost. We're thirsty. We've been hungry. We still, in the back of our mind, don't trust that that man is going to fall every morning. God, you brought us out here to die. You took us away from everything we'd ever known just to kill us with thirst. Think about how cruel they're accusing God of being there. They've seen God's power, right? These are the people that lived through the plagues. Remember, God turned off the lights. God turned the Nile to blood. God brought locusts and frogs and all other manner of awful thing against the Egyptians. Even wiped out all the firstborn of Egypt, right? If God wanted to kill Israel, it wouldn't have taken weeks and thirst. No, God could have ended them immediately. He wouldn't have needed to go to all the trouble of rescuing them just to dehydrate them to death. You see, attempted murder is a huge charge. That's what they're accusing God of doing. God, you just brought us out here to kill us. But they actually go one day. That sounds bad, right? That's a pretty serious charge. That's a little different to your life than a speeding ticket, right? You come home from you know, work one day. Honey, I got pulled over on the way home. I got a speeding ticket. Honey, I got pulled over in the home. I'm accused of murder. The things escalated. But they're about to get worse. This isn't, this isn't spoken out loud in the text, but actually Moses reveals some of their heart to us. You look down at verse 7, right at the end of the verse. It says, Because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us? or not. They actually accuse God of not even existing. God, are you even here? God is absent when we need Him present. God, do you exist? Here's the heart of Israel's complaint. And I wonder how many of us in this room would confess to some version of this complaint in our lowest moment, in our deepest struggle. God, are you really God at all? God, if this is how my life is going to be, God, if these are my circumstances, God, if on this side of eternity it doesn't get any better than this, then are you really who you say you are? Are you really God at all? Is the Lord among us or not? Israel was so desperately struggling in their hearts at this point that they were questioning everything right down to whether or not God exists. Psalm 90, uh, verse 10 says, Our lives last 70 years or for strong 80 years. Even the best of them are struggle and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly and we fly away. In the midst of that struggle and sorrow, church, are you tempted to ask whether God is there or not? Do you have a, a hard time believing that a God who loves you would assign you to live a life like this? Yeah, maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus and you just assume that that this is all life is. That it'll never get any better than this. And wherever you stand on that spectrum right now, I have great news for you. You see, Israel's charges in this passage are all false. 
God led Israel to the exact place He needed them to be. He provided them with more than they needed. He protected them when they didn't even know they needed protection. And He was present with them every step of the way. And that begins to come into focus when we see God's gracious response. And by the way, I especially think about this as a parent. After Israel comes in this sort of disrespectful manner, after Israel accuses God of the things that they accused Him of, I don't know that there's a Hebrew word for getting backhanded, but I think if, if I was playing God for the day, that would have been what happened with Israel in this moment, right? There would have been an angry, angry Israelite moment, or angry God moment in Israelite's history, if you were accused of these things by the people that you had just saved. You just rescued these people. God just moved nations, really. God performed miracles to affect their rescue. And here they are accusing Him of stranding them, of leading them astray, of trying to kill them, and of not even existing. The lack of gratitude is just staggering in Israel's And we often, as we read Scripture, don't we, we, we want to think of ourselves as being in the, like we want to see ourselves in the text, right? We read David and Goliath, whether it's right or wrong, we think of ourselves as being the one who's throwing the rock. We, think, we, we read uh, uh, different stories in Scripture and we go, well, if I was there, I would have done this. One of the things we need to reconcile church as we read Scripture is that we are never the hero. The hero in the text is always Jesus. We'll see how he's the hero in just a minute. But church, you want to see your own heart look in this. You want to see the ingratitude of our own heart when we sin. I'm saying, God, I know that you sacrificed your son for me, but I think I'm going to do it my way today. That's what we say when we sin. Okay, the brokenness that is there, the ingratitude that shows up there makes God's gracious response that much more incredible. You see, Exodus 17 isn't really about Israel's trial at all. It's about God's test. The Psalms help us understand it a little more again here. Psalm 81, verse 7 says, You called out in distress, and I rescued you. I answered you from the thundercloud. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. God said, I tested you. You thought you were putting me on trial? No, I tested you. Israel thought they were accusing God? No, God was testing them, and they failed miserably but fortunately for them and fortunately for us God's economy church is not a performance based economy God had already worked out the answer to Israel's accusations before they were even brought the miracle was already prepared the attack was already thwarted before Israel even knew it was coming for Israel and for us when we're at the deepest part of our struggle we need to see first that God provides direction. Verse 5, the Lord answered Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you, stuck the, uh, take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. God gets really specific in the way that He answers Israel's accusation here. They wanted a legal challenge. So God doesn't just send Moses. He sends Moses and the tribal leaders of Israel. He's sending the jury to go along with the accused. They get to be witnesses to the evidence. 
that in fact no crime has been committed by this God. No, He's again going to provide a miracle for their salvation. And the difference in Moses and the entire community of Israel in chapter 17 is that Moses doesn't complain to God. He listens to God and does exactly as he's told. God gave him specific instructions and he carries them out to the letter. Go on ahead of the people, take the elders, take the staff, hit the rock. God gives Moses clear direction. Church, we have clear direction. We have the lifestyle and the worldview of a Christian all spelled out for us, all written down for us in His Word. And all we can do as God's people is trust His direction and obey His commands even when we don't understand. God never left Israel to die. He'll never leave us either. And even if we do die, we rejoice with the Apostle Paul that our death is even better. To live as Christ, to die is gain. But so long as we're here and for eternity after, we know that God doesn't just teach us how to live, but He protects us as we do so. He provides protection. Verse 8, at Rephidim, Amalek came and fought against Israel. Moses said to Joshua, select some men for us and go fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the hilltop with God's staff in my hand. You see, the biggest danger, the immediate danger in Israel's mind was thirst. They didn't know that they were in grave mortal danger. These Amalekites who were used to desert life, who were prepared for battle, had been stalking them. Listen to how this attack is characterized over in Deuteronomy 25. Where Moses writes, remember what the Amalekites did to you on your journey after you left Egypt. They met you along the way and attacked all your stragglers from behind while you were tired and weary. They did not fear God. This was a brutal attack. But just like Israel didn't choose to come to Rephidim, they were led there by God. It is God himself who is going to lead in this battle. Here's what happens. The nation of Israel is going into armed combat for the first time in their history. They are every single one former slaves with no military training. Their morale has been incredibly low for the last six weeks. They're facing an experienced army accustomed to fighting in the desert. Church, it was going to take a miracle. What is largely thought of as the greatest modern military miracle that has taken place happened on the shores of Dunkirk, northern France, uh, from May 26th to June 4th back in World War II. Over the course of that time, 338,000 Allied troops were evacuated from mainland Europe back to relative safety in Britain. Winston Churchill called it a miracle of deliverance. But the miracle of Dunkirk doesn't hold a candle to the miracle of Rephidim. God placed His people in this danger to teach them something about who He is. He is the God who provides protection. He took their most capable leader, Moses. He took them, him out of the picture. See, listen, I don't, I don't know how odds makers do things, but, but I don't know what sort of odds you would give an experienced army versus a ragtag bunch of slaves whose leader isn't going to be fighting, he's going to be standing on a hill with a stick. Things look bad for Israel in this moment. God is teaching them 
something. We, we meet this young Joshua character who we know nothing about up until this point. God is teaching Israel not to depend on Moses. He's actually teaching them not to depend on Joshua. They certainly can't depend on their military skill because they don't have any. And so what's the symbol of this victory? Well, if you read back through the text, there's two miracles here, and one thing is present at both, and that is Moses' staff. Actually, it wasn't really even Moses' staff. It's God's staff. When it was held up in his hand, Israel won. When it was lowered, Israel failed. It didn't matter what Moses did, really. It didn't matter if he was standing or sitting. It didn't matter if Moses held up his hands on his own or someone else held them up for him. What mattered was that the staff remained elevated above Israel like a banner. God is reminding Israel that it's His presence that protects them. His presence that provides for them. And it's not just protection from Amalek. No, it's that the Lord provides protection even from death. If you jump back to the first scene in the chapter... Because I think that's actually the more significant miracle. Verse 6, we see where God provides life. He says, I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. We don't know if that's some early manifestation of Jesus. We don't, we don't get any more information than what's there in the text. But we do know that when Moses hit the rock, water came out of it so much so that the entire nation had water to drink. For me, this is the most amazing miracle since the Red Sea. Moses just struck this rock and water came out. This is bonkers, right? Water doesn't come out of rocks. I'm thankful that our resident water expert is back today. If the city of Centralia said, well, the water's not working, but good news, folks. We have Aaron. And Aaron is going to go, and he's going to whack rocks all day. And we're going to be fine. We'd be like, I don't know if we need to vote, or if we need to, like, just... I, we'd be calling Harold Deckard, who's an all... Like, we'd be trying... It's just... They've lost it over at the, the city, okay? Uh, because they're going to send Aaron off to go, just, uh, just smack the gravel, it'll be fine. No, God is teaching us something. He's not teaching us water management here. Okay, water doesn't come from locks, let, let alone so much water that could sustain all the men, women, children, and livestock in Israel to give them all the drink that they wanted. No, these people who had seen plagues, they'd seen God part a sea, they'd seen God destroy enemies, He provided food and water. They're about to see another spectacular miracle. Moses did exactly what God told him to do, and God provided. Think for a moment, church, about the amazing grace of God. His people are grumbling, they're complaining, they're disbelieving, and God graciously provides for His people anyway. But this miracle, church, ultimately had nothing to do with thirst had nothing to do with a rock and had nothing to do with water. No, Paul, in the New Testament, we have the advantage of God's as God's people being able to look back on these events through the lens of the New Testament. We can see what, God, what Paul does with this passage in 1 Corinthians 10, where he writes that now I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. C.I. Schofield said this episode in Exodus is illustrative of the entire life under grace. The rock is struck for an unworthy people. 
The life that is offered from it is free, it is unearned, it is abundant, it is near, it is available. And all we have to do to be saved from death is to reach out by faith and partake of the grace that is offered. You and I had the incredible privilege, church, of learning from Israel's mistakes. God was so gracious to Israel that as they were accusing Him of being a murderer, He didn't lash out in anger. He showed them the gospel. See, we need something that we can't produce. We need life. Ephesians tells us we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We've earned our own death. Even worse, we've earned the wrath of a holy God. But instead of striking us down, God placed His only Son in danger. He became the rock struck in our place, out of whom flows the river of life. The Bible teaches if we repent of our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Israel is still trying to solve their own problem, church, without realizing that it's God who already solved the one problem that they were powerless to solve. Now they just had to trust and live in obedience to His Word. Church, we can learn so much from Israel's disobedience, so much from their mistakes. We can believe for ourselves that God is who He says He is. The only visible hero in this passage is the staff that indicated God's presence. And it did that all the way back to the plagues. It shows up anytime God is doing something significant in Israel. The staff isn't magic, but God is all Powerful. Moses closes the chapter by building an altar of remembrance. He calls it, the Lord is my banner. The Lord is the one under who we rally. We're covered by His Spirit. When, when we, like Israel, look at the world around us and find ourselves grumbling, find ourselves with an accusatory attitude toward God, don't give in to your thirst. Don't look at the dangerous army that's approaching in fear. Trust that God is going to do something with your circumstances for His glory, and for your good, and believe that God really is the God He says He is. If you do that, you can trust. And that's the second thing we can learn. We can trust instead of grumble. Israel was in greater danger this whole time from Amalek than they were from their thirst. They would have died from their thirst in a few days. They were going to die from Amalek tomorrow. He even kills some of the Israelites. We don't have... Evidence that anyone died of dehydration here, yet they didn't even know that Amalek was a problem. They didn't grumble about Amalek because they didn't know about him yet. This caught them completely off guard. Church, whatever you're tempted to complain about, recognize that there could be a dozen worse issues in your life that God hasn't even revealed to you yet. And so instead of grumbling, trust that God is using whatever this trial is to grow you and busy yourself doing the things God has commanded. See, there's an interesting balance at play here that I don't want you to miss. Even though Moses' staff was clearly the deciding factor in the battle, right? when the staff is elevated, Israel wins. When it's down, they lose. It represents God's presence. So the lesson is that when God is present, we win. When He's not, we lose. Israel still had to fight. That's not always true. Remember, at the Red Sea, when Pharaoh's army is bearing down on them, God told Israel, look, y'all just hush. Okay, you all be silent, and I'll fight for you. But at Rephidim, God said, all right, strap up, let's go. You guys are going to fight, and my presence is with you. 
The Christian life, church, is not meant to be lived on autopilot. If you think you can pray a prayer, walk an aisle, get baptized, and life is a happy little parade after that point, you're simply wrong. Our obedience doesn't earn salvation. Our salvation enables obedience. And you can't have one without the other. Remember, this part of Exodus is about sanctification. Now that we're saved, how do we live? God is teaching Israel to obey, no matter how bad the circumstances get. And He's doing it before He's given them the law that will come in the form of the Ten Commandments. Because that law, that obedience doesn't save anyone. They're already saved. Obedience is about trusting that this life God saved us to live really is what's best. It really is what we're called to. It really matters. And that's why Moses builds an altar, to remind Israel of that truth every day. So church, we're faced with a decision as we lead this life. When things don't go exactly the way that we plan them, we can put God on trial, or we can remember that God is our banner. God is the one who is over all of this. God is the one who we look to. God's eyes are the eyes through whom we interpret our circumstances. We're not always going to understand them, but we can always glorify God in them because He really does provide. He doesn't leave us in the desert to die. No, God has rescued us and is preparing a resting place for us. And you're actually already in it. Paul told the church of Philippi that God is going to complete the good works that He began in them. Israel is at the resting place. Again, that's what resting means. Israel is in their resting place, yet there was a ton of work to do if they were going to glorify God. Our obedience doesn't save us, church, but because we're saved, we're empowered to be obedient to what God has called us to and whatever it is you're facing today. It's God's sovereign hand that has guided you into it, and He is the banner that's going to lead you out of it as you're faithful, which you can be through His Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me as we close? God, I know that there are those within the sound of my voice that are just right in the middle of their own personal wilderness journey. God, life is hard. Life is confusing. Life is painful. And when we read in Psalm 90 that all of life is struggle and sorrow, God, that couldn't resonate more with our hearts because we're hurting. And Lord, it is the predisposition of our sinful hearts to blame you for some of those hurts, to blame you for some of those circumstances. God, in many cases, we, we would do well to recognize that we've created some of our own struggling circumstances. God, and, and even in the situations where we haven't, God, if it's a, a medical circumstance, if it's a family circumstance, if it's, if it's a chronic pain or a chronic broken relationship or a financial struggle, whatever that struggle is that you have led us into, God, help us in the midst of that darkness. To trust that you really are God. To see the good things you have done for us. To see that you provide the rock from which we get life. That you protect us in the midst of our fiercest 
battles. That though life may not be the life that we planned out for ourselves, God, the life that you planned really is better. Don't let us be distracted by those things that we somewhere in our heart want that you have told us no about. And God, give us the grace to embrace the life that you've laid before. Lord, help us not to be people who grumble. Help us not to be people who pout, who are upset at you because of the circumstances of our lives. God, help us to embrace the life you have given us to lead. And God, we desperately need you for this. We desperately need each other for this, God, because the life you've called us to lead is hard. Lord, there is heartbreak on this side of eternity. But Lord, give us comfort in knowing that, that those broken pieces of our heart, they don't just fall to the floor, God. No, those you hold on to those, Lord, and we, will, we know that our heart will be put back together even fuller than it ever has been on the other side of eternity, God, because we are destined for a true place of rest. We are destined for a place where there is no sickness, there is no death, there is no brokenness, God. There is only joy. And that joy is because of the rock that was struck for us. We can get there because we can follow your banner of leadership, God, that is raised high above us. Lord, help us to trust in that and not in ourselves. We pray in your Son's name. And all God's people said, Amen.